Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves stigmatized communities in navigating their healing process. Today's topic is going to be herpes. I'm here with Fred from the American Sexual Health Association. Fred, how are you? Courtney, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? As all right as you can be right now, right? <laughs> tell you. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all down, aren't we? Yeah, and I guess that's what finally allowed for this podcast interview to happen. We've been <laughs> playing tag with one another for a bit, uh, so it was nice yeah. to be able to get the podcast going. It would have been nice oh, to yeah. be able to do in person, but we're doing what we can with what we have to work with. Yeah, we can just jump right into it. Well, let's begin with ASHA, American Sexual Health Association. Can you give us a little bit of background about the organization and what your role is there? Sure. Well, I'm the director of communications at ASHA, and I've been there since 1997, believe it or not, a long time. And for most of my career there, I've worn a lot of hats, but I've worked a lot with our resource centers around herpes and HPV and other things like that. So the herpes work has been something that I've done um, for at least 20 of my 23 years there. ASHA was founded back in 1914. Back in the day, it was called the Social Hygiene Movement. And we were based in New York at the time. And back then, the real focus was uh, was syphilis. That was sort of the scourge of the day. And then over the years, we just grew. We got a broader mission. And now, not only do we still do all the work around herpes and, and other STDs, but we have a broader sexual health mission. And we've realized that really these things can't be put in such distinct silos. You know, they really overlap. So we look at sexual health in its totality. Of course, a big part of that is the herpes work. And as a communications director, do you send out the newsletters? or Yeah, that's certainly part of it. So, of course, you know, more and more these days, everything is digital. So where we've got all these social media platforms that we manage, and we're trying to find new ways to reach even larger numbers of people and sort of meet them where they are. So we're doing a lot of podcasts on our own. We actually have a video channel called Sexual Health TV. My hand involved just about all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we still do the newsletters. People sign up for whatever we're sending out, and uh, we send things out a few times a year. More and more, we're trying to engage not only the broad public, but also healthcare professionals, really to kind of help them understand what folks are going through so hopefully those patient and provider interactions are, are going even smoother. I appreciate that because there is a lot of stigmatization that occurs between patient care provider oftentimes initially after a diagnosis, whether it be intentional or not, I've encouraged people who find their way to this podcast when it comes to sexual health and getting tested to go to a testing site more so than their family health care physician. What are you seeing from your end as far as how providers are interacting with patients? Well, I think there's some reluctance because herpes is not just a quick conversation. Not only do you have to go over the medical aspects of explain the diagnosis and the treatment options, but then there's also the relationship aspect of the personal aspect and that kind of thing. And I think sometimes it's a little daunting for providers because they're busy, their schedules are packed, and they just don't have a lot of time with each clinical encounter. And it can be a little bit daunting to try and explain herpes and get into stuff that that brings up with the patient. And a lot of times, too, the patient is hampered because they're just shell-shocked. They're like, I... Uh, you know, that's about it. And then what we hear from them a lot is, you know, after I got home, then I started thinking, oh, I should have asked this, I should have asked that, that kind of thing. It's kind of hard. So one thing that we do is we create tools to kind of facilitate those conversations. We've got, for example, a herpes testing toolkit for providers that has a section on on patient counseling messages, things like that, so the providers feel, you know, a little more empowered, a little bit better armed to have these conversations. Like, here are the main points that you need to hit in a quick 
compassion. And a big part of that is, you know, your patient's going to have a lot of questions when they go home, stuff that, that they didn't even know about. Once they start searching online, they'll come up with a lot of questions. So give them some places they can go, like the ASH or really, you know, a number of other credible uh, sources so that they can get some follow-up information when they start Googling at 2 o'clock in the morning. Is there a specific information that people may want to get after a diagnosis? So you mentioned like they get home and they find out that they have so many more questions. What are some of those common questions? A lot of it has to do around partners' relationships. How do I talk to a partner, whether that's a current partner or just somebody they may meet down the road? And that's the hard part. You know, what do I even say to this person, that kind of thing? On our website, on the Herpes pages, we have a tab called Herpes and Relationships where we actually give people not really a script exactly, but sort of a guide to really, you know, this is how to bring the topic up. These are the things to say. This is the kind of stuff your partner is almost certainly going to want to know. And we even talk about things like the attitude you should bring to that conversation, the body language you should bring. You know, this is not a deep, dark confession. You didn't do anything wrong. And really, don't make it a conversation just about herpes. You know, talk about sex and sexual health and sexuality in general. This is just one thing that you're discussing as part of that. And, of course, people, you know, they, you know, you mentioned stigma in your introduction. Of course, that's a big part of it. You know, people say, you know, uh, I feel like I'm the only one who has this. I feel like I'm the only one. Who, you know, who can possibly understand, you know, what I'm going through. You know, there's a sense of isolation that goes to it. We're kind of trying to help people understand, you know, just how common herpes is, how common STDs are, and that, you know, really just anybody can be at risk. So that's, that's a big part of what we do. We probably spend as much time talking about the psychological and the social part of it as we do the medical impact. That's a good point that you bring up there for people who feel like, like they're the only person who has herpes. I took a survey of listeners of the podcast. 98% of our listeners are HSV positive and the other 2% don't know their status just because they haven't been tested for it. One of the things that has come up is that community has been a very important part for people. Just feeling like they're not alone. And if you look at the statistics, obviously you know that isn't the case because there are so many people who are living with it. Do you have any community-based resources or something that can support people so that they don't feel so alone outside of the statistics? Yeah, and the nature of that, those support resources, I think, has really changed a lot over the years. It used to be back in the day, we had a national and even to some extent international network of support groups, you know, actual meetings that would take place. Like somebody would rent a room at a, at a, at a library or community center, that kind of thing. Probably at its heyday, there were close to three dozen, maybe even more, that's scattered across primarily North America. Over time, that began to wane. People really weren't so much going into meetings and things kind of moved online. And so a lot of those actual bricks and mortars types of physical meetings, I don't know that they take place quite so much anymore, not very many of them. But there are a lot of online resources. And in response to this, one of the things we have is an online sexual health community, just an ASHA-branded community. It's, It's through platform called inspire Inspire inspire.com there's a free registration to it but just you people can go there just search for american sexual health association and you really don't even have to actually post anything because there are so many herpes discussions and questions and answers people come at it from every way you can imagine so for most folks a lot of the questions they're going to have you can search and just scroll through and just see all the discussions and find things there or if you want to just come up with a anonymous username if you, if you like or just whatever and then just just post that and then uh, you know the community will respond to you and ASHA staff kind of lightly moderates that community so that's where we meet people a lot these days the other thing we do too Courtney is that you know ASHA has had a herpes resource center actually since the late 1970s 
Wait a minute. Herpes has been around since at least the 1970s? We, I think, I, I believe it was 1979 <laughs> the Herpes Resource Center started. Yeah, so we've been doing this forever and ever and ever, it seems like. And even back then, there was a hotline. You could call a number and talk to somebody. You know, a volunteer who's trained by the center would, would, would chat with you. So what we've learned over all these decades is we've got a pretty good idea with people, especially when they're freshly diagnosed. You know, the kinds of questions that they ask, the kind of information they really need to have, what's meaningful for them right there on the spot. And so we've been proactive about that. So a lot of the videos that we develop, the fact sheets we develop, the e-booklets we develop, all those kinds of things really have that built into it. So in addition to actually going to an interactive place like the online community, if you go to our website and sort of download something or just click on the, any of the pages of the resources we have, watch the videos, you'll see that most of the FAQs people want to know about, we're sort of trying to anticipate that and build that into our resources. So again, all this stuff is online now, and not everything we offer is freely available, but just about all of it is. Most of our things are just free and open. Now, you mentioned earlier that you are present in a lot of places, and there's a presence of Asha on the internet, and you have all these different resources. Is there any sort of outreach on your end that's taking place in order to connect with organizations, providers, as well as people who are living with herpes? We engage with stakeholders across the spectrum. I mean, with advocates, with patients, with professional organizations. And that's one of the ways that we deal with providers because, you know, we've got a lot of uh, contacts um, with different kinds of uh, organizations, societies that are really geared to the professional audience. It's a great place. We get contact there. We can introduce, hopefully, if we introduce one person to what we have, they can take it back and show it. Mm -hmm. uh, to their colleagues, that kind of thing. We really try to be proactive on social media. You know, more and more, that's the best way to connect, not only with individuals, but with groups and with causes and things. And so we're monitoring what's trending online in this community, what's happening, you know, what kind of information are people seeking. We follow folks, we, we connect with folks, we try and, and, and retweet and repost what credible sources are putting out there answer questions that way. So that's one way that we do it. We also go to a lot of professional meetings and conferences and things and try and get the word about who we are, what we do, and what we offer, you know. And a lot of these places, you know, you're meeting with, with professionals, but you're also meeting with just regular folks and, and activists and advocates, professionals in their own right, you know. And that's a good way to have some face-to-face -face time with these folks. If nothing else, give a business card and say, you know, maybe we can talk later, that kind of thing. That's how I found you guys, actually. I went to STD Engage, the conference in 2019 in yes. Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, I met some folks there who had a booth set up. So that's what got this introduction going here. So um, y'all out here. <laughs> And that trip to STD Engage 2019 would not have been possible without the support of the listeners of Something Positive for Positive People making those donations so that I was able to fly out there and have an Airbnb and be able to connect with so many different people in the public health profession um, and just get something like this podcast episode started. And one of the other ways that you can support Something Positive for Positive People is by supporting our sponsors, one of which is BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash S-P-F-P-P. I mentioned to you all that I've been seeing a therapist and we're on week, we're on our fourth session in three weeks, actually. Um, I'm really loving the communication. He's reached out after we've talked about some really heavy stuff, actually, and he's texted me through the app 
and we've been able to sort of go back and forth there and as uh, something new emerged in my journaling and just responding to some of the homework that he's given me yes you do get homework in some cases uh, we've been really progressing through some things that I felt well first off that I didn't even know that I was dealing with I didn't know that um, perhaps I hadn't really healed myself from my diagnosis in terms of like mentally and emotionally and this was something that he was able to come up with with me in conversation so um, right now something positive for positive people listeners get 10% off their first month of better help by going to www.betterhelp.com slash SPFPP. This service is available for clients worldwide. So I know we have uh, listeners in Canada. We've got listeners in South America. And we've got listeners in Germany. Um, I know that because I look at the stats, which I started keeping right around the time we got the sponsors so that uh, we can present more of that information and have more opportunities to uh, really continue to grow the podcast and get this kind of support from our sponsors. And the more you support our sponsors, the more they support us. So in doing something for yourself, you're also able to do something for someone else through this service. So you can visit the website, you can read testimonials that are posted daily, and you can do this by just visiting www.betterhelp.com slash SPFPP. Again, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash SPFPP. And I strongly recommend that anyone who's entering the space of herpes education activism or advocacy consider checking in with a therapist because this is what I reached out about because I want to be able to take care of myself so that I don't suffer from compassion fatigue or burnout and then all of a sudden you know I just drop off the planet uh, because I need to take a break and take care of myself so you can get ahead on your mental health and being able to take care of yourself by visiting www.better.com Help, H-E-L-P dot com slash S-P-F-P-P for 10% off your first month. And now back to the podcast. You brought up the activism in the space and advocacy. Do you feel there's any harm that is potentially being done from maybe people who don't have any sort of qualifications to talk about sexual health, but have these large platforms and followings of people and they're advocating for sexual health related information? Well, I think that's probably true in just about any field online, the whole fake news and that that's kind of stuff. So I think that's pervasive everywhere. I mean, by and large, I think where we probably run up against that the most are with people who are peddling purported cures and things. Oh, if you take this herb or that, or if you use this, this topical ointment, I used it. It stopped my outbreaks altogether. I haven't had an outbreak in over a year, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of it is not somebody who's actually trying to be a scam artist. It's just people who are desperate. They're looking for things that'll help them. They come across something and they, you know, they're, they're clinging to it. That's where we spend a lot of our time doing stuff. And, you know, and especially with herpes, you know, there's, I mean, that's been going on. As long as people have been talking about herpes, people have been talking about, you know, well, if you eat if you eat this kind of diet, then you're not going to have as many outbreaks. Or if you take these kind of herbs, hey, 
you know, you, you, I took, I swear, I took this. I started testing negative after, after I had my positive. That's still problematic. You have to sort of finesse how you respond to that, because, like I said, a lot of the people aren't just outright scam artists. A lot of them are people who just really, they're trying to cling on to something. For example, on the message board community, there was a discussion about some wacky vaccine that was experimental. And people said, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, if you take this vaccine, it will clear you of the virus. It is a cure, not a treatment, a cure. And of course, it's, there's no such thing. But they were going on and on and on about that. And you know, so I went in, I, rep- I responded, I tried to be you know, pretty gentle if I could be, said, well, actually consider this, that kind of thing. And the response I got back was, you're killing our hope. You're killing our hope, and that was the key to the whole thing. They were just looking for something to give them some hope. You have to be careful. You want to address this stuff and counter it, but you also have to be mindful that the person who may be putting it out there might be somebody who really just so desperately wants to believe it. They may feel like they need to believe it. You don't want to alienate people, but you want to sort of get the right message out there, too. It's a a tough job, Courtney. (laughs) Oh, trust me. I know. Something Positive for Positive People started out as a suicide prevention resource for people who were contemplating suicide after their diagnosis. And I'm curious to know if you've been met with any of that. I know that that sounds extreme and probably rare, but have you been faced with anyone who's just been so extremely desperate for something and they articulate that they're in a space where they're not mentally healthy? Yeah, fortunately, not a lot, but yes, that absolutely has happened. And probably with herpes more than anything else we talk about, I think even compared to HIV, the emotional impact of the people who come to ASH over the years seems to be more profound with herpes. So we do encounter that from time to time, but fortunately, not an awful lot. This can really just shell shock somebody. And, you know, we tend to stigmatize anything to do with sex, especially around STDs. When somebody's first diagnosed, there's just that huge, oh my God moment. And a lot of people, especially if they don't have, like you're talking about, the community or a place to go, which is so important, somebody to talk to. I mean, for a lot of folks, they just don't have anybody, even a trusted friend or relative, they can talk to about herpes because it just seems so awful, you know, in the beginning. And when you're really fighting this by yourself or you're just trying to cope with it on your own, again, it gets back to the isolation we talked about and just kind of snowballs. And for some people, it is absolutely overwhelming. For someone who is newly diagnosed and happens to hit uh, herpes in the search box of the Google window, that's a traumatizing thing, right? And this is what you're met with. So let's say you're someone who Googles it because you've been disclosed to. And then I want to answer the question of you're Googling it because you've tested positive. Is there any sort of guidance that we can give to either of these people along their search so that they can find accurate, consistent information? One thing to keep in mind is a lot of times what you find online are worst case scenarios of things, especially if you're talking about, like, say, medical complications or what outbreaks are like. There's some nuance there that a lot of times sites don't, don't, don't talk about, it. especially if you look at the images of outbreaks of things. You'll just see one horrific thing after another. And while that happens in some cases, that's not typical. You know, probably about 85% of those who are dealing with herpes are never diagnosed and don't really have a lot of profound significant symptoms that include the midday something's going on here. So most people don't have these really awful outbreaks, certainly not ones that keep coming back over and over and over again, but you know, some relatively few do, but most don't. And so just be mindful that what you're looking at sometimes, what comes up at the top of the search page, might actually be some things that are really kind of extreme or maybe worst case scenarios that aren't necessarily typical. That's one thing that we talk about 
beyond that, yeah, it really is a case of buyer beware in a lot of cases. I mean, you, you have to be mindful about where you're getting your information from. And fortunately, these days, a lot of sites, most sites are offering linked other resources and things. So if you find a, a source that you feel good about, like so if you feel good about Asher, you come to Asher's site, you see the kind of links we have, then you've got a pretty good idea that you're going someplace that's rational and that will give you uh, pretty much the, the straight scoop on things. So I think it's definitely this is this is a place where just like anything else, you have to be you're a consumer of health information, mm-hmm. and some of it's good, and some of it's not so good. As far as when people are diagnosed and their first concerns, primarily in relation to sex or relationships, what are some things that we can expect to hear or find if we go to Asha's site for resources? Previously, when we were talking about this, when we were discussing, like here's how to have a conversation. It's not just about the information you're imparting. It's also about your own mindset, even like your posture, your body language, that kind of thing. And we tell people, look, just remember, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not broken. You're not broken. And don't adopt that mindset that you are. And it's not like a matter of telling somebody, well, I've got something to tell you. It's really awful. I don't know how you're going to react. It's not like that at all. It's just an honest, frank conversation. It's like, here's the deal, and lay it out. And what we find that it often comes down to is when you're talking with a new partner, no matter what they ask you about with herpes, it usually boils down to a couple of things. What are the odds I'm going to get this, and what will happen to me if I do? That kind of thing. It typically always comes down to something like that. And so being able to talk about risk reduction strategies and how well these things you know, tend to work, what the options are for risk reduction, that kind of thing. There's, there's, there's abstaining during outbreaks. There's there's using condoms as they're appropriate to our relationship. There's maybe even using medication daily, suppressive therapy that can significantly reduce transmission rates. Things like that. Being in tune with one's own body, just simply being observant, you know, that, and observable and stuff about it if you think something's happening. That kind of thing. And we know that simply communicating with a partner, that in itself is associated with a reduction in transmission. We try to arm people with those kinds of things that, that a partner's going to want to know about. What will happen to me if I do get it? That gets back to what we were just talking about. This is not to minimize anything, but the fact is most people don't have a whole lot in terms of significant or ongoing medical issues. And so either people do have recurrent outbreaks and they can be absolutely just troubling and miserable in some cases, but most people don't really have any major health concerns, and there is, fortunately, there are effective antivirals to help with the uh, speed the healing of the outbreaks as they're needed. So making sure people know there are very proactive, effective things you can do, do here, and being able to communicate that, but communicate in a way where you're still, you know, respecting yourself and holding your head high. Now, with herpes being a virus that's transmitted by skin-to-skin contact, I could have an outbreak on my butt cheek, my hip my hand, my elbow, my ankle. It confuses me a little bit. Like, is it really a STD? Well, when we're talking about uh, herpes simplex virus, let's say more specific, when we're talking about genital herpes, regardless of whether it's simplex one or simplex two, yes, that is sexually acquired. But you're right. Even if somebody acquires it through genital to genital contact, the outbreaks may not happen on the genitals. If you can imagine a small pair of shorts you've got on, you can imagine that the buttocks, the thighs, even the pubic line, that kind of thing, the outbreaks can actually come up there. And that's because, of course, you know, as the virus reactivates, it's replicating and rising, coming up the nerve pathways to the skin. Those nerve pathways can kind of branch off a couple different areas. And, you know, it may not pop up exactly where one was infected. It won't be too far away, but just within that region, sure. But, yeah, genital herpes is an SCD, even though the symptoms may not always show up directly on the genitalia. 
As far as the stigma goes, is it the stigma of an STD or is it really the stigma of sex that is what's most troubling for people who, when they're diagnosed with an STD, they now have a shattering of their identities? It's all kind of wrapped up into one great big stew. It's an infection that you got through having sex, S-E-X, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, like I said earlier, anything that involves sex, we tend to get really emotional about. We're unsure about it. We're very quick to latch stigma onto it, just about anything to do with sex. And when you get an infection through having sex, boy, oh boy, you've got a double whammy. So I think it's a little bit of both. And I think we also have a lot of bad misconceptions about who gets STDs and why. You know, oh, it's somebody who's promiscuous. It's somebody who's doing this. No, no, not at all. We know that STDs are incredibly common, that really most sexually active people, even though most will never know it, the vast majority will have at least one STD at some point in their life. And that's not a typo, as I like to say when I'm putting that, when I'm typing that, writing that online or in an email or something. Most sexually active people will have an STD at some point in their lives. It's just that most of them never get diagnosed. So sort of my, my little throwaway line about that is, do you know what you are if you have an STD? You're human. There is a lot of misinformation from trusted resources in regards to testing, and I'll give you a couple of examples for context. Someone can go to one care provider and ask for herpes tests because they have been exposed to herpes by a partner, and this medical provider can say, we can't test you without symptoms. Another provider, given the same question, will just tell the patient, oh, just wear condoms, you'll be fine. And then another one could just be like, well, if you haven't had an outbreak, then you're okay. These are three different healthcare providers sharing inconsistent and wrong information. (laughs) Getting tested is important. 51% of people don't want to get tested because, well, I shouldn't say they don't want to, but they don't get tested because they don't want to talk about their sexual health or STIs with their care provider. And that's scary. And that also trickles down into a lot of other things because when a person does receive a diagnosis, oftentimes how their provider presents the information shapes the foundation of how they believe other people are going to receive the information when they disclose to them. So I hope that we're able to significantly drop those numbers by having you all utilize and share with your partners our new sponsor let's get checked it's a company on the mission to make professional health testing easily accessible so specifically here we're talking about the scd testing i've gotten it i got the uh $270 one. I didn't open it up right uh, on the computer right here in front of me to talk through it. Actually, I could type it in while I talk through this. I'm going to go to trylogic without the vowels dot com slash SPFPP. That's T-R-Y-L-G-C dot com slash SPFPP. And I'm going to read off to you the tests that are on here. So the complete 10, it includes chlamydia, gonorrhea, Trichomoniasis, HIV, syphilis, Gardnerella, Mycoplasma, Ureaplasma, Herpes simplex virus 1 and 2. And this is a complete 10 and it comes out to $349. I don't know the math when you put in the code of uh, SPFPP at the end and you get 30% off. But that's what it is right now. The standard five is significantly cheaper. Of course, it's $200 cheaper than that. And it includes chlamydia, gonorrhea, trick, 
HIV, syphilis. You do not have to leave your home. These test kits are accurate and reliable. They're private and confidential. There's discreet packaging. I got mine. It's about the size of my hand. It fit into my mailbox and it was just wrapped in white paper with my address on it. Everything's in here to provide the test. Um, you we're going to prick your fingers, so you're not going to draw blood like I thought you would before I actually received the test. It's going to be finger pricking and then peeing into the vials. And um, you want to take it in the morning, Monday through Thursday uh, at some point, and then get it to uh, a shipping space immediately after you uh, put your address on the shipping label that they sent you. So um, on here, UPS is what's on the picture on the tab that they give you. But you'll activate your kit, collect your sample, and then send it off to the lab. It's TryLogic without the vowel. So T-R-Y-L-G-C dot com slash S-P-F-P-P. And you are going to save 30% off of your first test kit. Uh, I chose the complete 10 because I want to know if I uh, contracted HSV-1 on top of my HSV-2 diagnosis from eight years ago. I've had sexual partners who uh, didn't know what type of herpes they've had, and I've had partners who've had HSV-1. So it'll just be interesting to know and see um, over time how my results have been impacted so that I can speak to that experience. So um, in supporting our sponsors, you support something positive for positive people. This is something that you you are going to need to do, you're going to want to do. And so why not do it and continue to support something that you continue to come back to and enjoy by visiting trylgc.com slash SPFPP, select your test. And when you go to the cart to check out, you're going to get 30% off when you use the code SPFPP. All right, now we're going to get back into the podcast with Fred from Asha. No, exactly. And I think part of that gets back to the fact that we don't do a great job of educating our healthcare professionals about sexual health and STDs. You know, I, I think most medical school curricula either don't really address sexual health or they do that sort of as a, as a oh, yeah, by the way, kind of thing. I don't know that we really always give healthcare providers the tools that they need. That gets back to what I, when I was talking about some of the stuff we do to try and bridge the gap and facilitate you know, uh, conversations between providers and patients. A lot of that is because we understand that providers need to be empowered. They, they, they don't know how to talk about herpes. Uh, that's why we did that herpes testing toolkit I talked about. That's exactly why we did that, because there's just a lot to think about here. It's not that simple. What about a blood test, a swap test, a sample test from somebody who's, who's symptomatic? What do you do with these results? Who should be tested for herpes? Under what circumstances? We don't really have a consensus around like who all should be tested for herpes. You know, the way we do some things like, say, chlamydia, or gonorrhea, where we've got some pretty good guidelines. These folks should be tested, these folks in this age group should be tested, things like that. Herpes is kind of loosey-goosey in that way, so there's not a lot of firm guidance about even who should be tested or when, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think what we really need to do there is to is to really prioritize trying to make sure that providers understand not only how to talk with their patients about herpes, but who should be diagnosed and what the options are and really you know what the testing means. I think you've got a couple ways to work about that. Conversely, we also try and educate um, uh, patients. You know, we've got things on our website like 10 questions to ask your health care provider, sheets that people can actually print out and take with them or just review to get an idea. If your provider's not proactive and talking about the topics that are important to you, 
here's how you can bring it up. Here's maybe what to say to your provider. And we encourage people, even just take this in with you if you want to. Take this sheet in and show it to them. So a lot of it comes down, I think, to education, making sure that providers understand. Because you're right, it, everything you just laid out there, three different providers, three different answers, you could not have been more right. And we hear that kind of stuff, too. I went to one doctor, they told me this. That guy was a jerk. I went to somebody else, they weren't any better. We hear that kind of stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. They just maybe don't know. And then as far as language goes, so when I was given my pamphlet of information about herpes, I believe yeah. that there was one in six, one in five, one in four, one in three. So I've got four different graphs and explanations of one in six people had genital HSV2, one in five had genital HSV1, one in four had oral HSV1, or one in three had any sort of herpes, period. There seems to be an inconsistency of language across the board when we're talking about herpes in particular, that if I were to quote any of these statistics and someone else were to Google because I disclosed to them, they may not see the same numbers where I'm reflecting how common it is. They may see something that shows otherwise, and I just may look like I'm trying to make myself sound better by saying so many people have it. Well, I think, you know, herpes is not uh, a a quote-unquote reportable STD the way things like, say, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis are. It can be hard to kind of nail down consistent numbers, but here's some statistics that we refer to. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have one data set. The last I saw on that said that among Americans between the ages of 14 and 49, I think the the infection with HSV2 was about 16%, and that's just among Americans 14 to 49. Of course, if you go out to people, you know, 50 and over, you're going to increase that a lot. So that's one statistic we quote a lot that shows you really how common HSV2, which is almost always experienced as genital herpes, probably nine times out of ten in HSV2 infection is going to be related to genital herpes, and how common it is. And we also know that the number of new genital herpes cases related to HSV1, which you know, traditionally you think of HSV1 as oral herpes and cold sores, that kind of thing. That's still true. But more and more HSV1 is showing up as genital infection. Probably the estimates uh, I'm aware of say that about half of all new genital herpes infections actually involve HSV-1, so more and more you're seeing HSV-1 genitally. The other statistic I'll quote is, um, sorry I don't have a source for this, but just off the top of my head, I know that it's estimated that just slightly over half of adults in the U.S. have oral herpes, which is almost always HSV-1. Those are kind of three data points that we reference a lot, but the one that's I think is it, 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 really pretty thoroughly documented is the CDC data around HSV-2 and that, the 14 to 49 group, which is around 16, 17%, something like that. In disclosure, do you find that there is a quote-unquote best way of going about disclosing for people who are diagnosed and navigating the challenge of telling partners that they have herpes or if there's a new partner that they want to be intimate with that they have received this diagnosis? Do we want to go statistic heavy? Does it just depend on the person or what? That's a great question. Yeah, Courtney, and there is really no one way to do that, but I think you were sort of going on the right track where you said you kind of have to look at the person. It's, yeah, you do. You have to sort of tailor it to what you know what you know about this person, what you have, have sort of like your, what your gut's telling you, you know, how they react. You know, are they a numbers person? Are they more, is this more, more of a head or a heart kind of a 
feel that you're making with them. One thing is that, especially if you're, say, if you're in a relationship, if you have a current partner and, and then the diagnosis comes down, it's important for people to understand that herpes is something you could have for weeks, months, even years without being diagnosed. Like I said, most people will go a lifetime and will never be medically diagnosed with herpes. Just because herpes comes up in a relationship today doesn't mean that anybody's cheated. Of course, they could have. It doesn't mean that. And I think people don't often don't have that perspective. Uh, so that's one thing. Beyond that, you know, it could be kind of tough. But yeah, I think you sort of have to feel your partner out. And maybe with a new partner, you get a sense of relationship is really moving towards intimacy, it's moving towards sex. Before you have sex, before you get to that point, that's the time to bring it up. And I think, really, you pay attention to some of the factors I mentioned earlier, your, your body language, really your own attitude about those. Remember, you didn't do anything wrong and you're not broken. And then arm yourself with some data points I talked about, about here's how we can reduce the risk, pretty significantly, actually, in most cases. Here's what having herpes means for most people, that kind of thing. I think beyond that, you just want to have that conversation before things get hot and heavy. What you don't want to do is when you're moving to the point where you're having sex and it's about to happen, then you try to start, you know, start having this conversation. I think you really have it before then. It's just probably a little bit easier to do and, and a little more effective. Also, have some resources you can send them to. I mentioned that that earlier. You, know, you talked about when you were sent out of the, sent out of, of the office with, with your little pamphlet, that kind of thing. You know, I mean, we, we fortunately, we could do better than that these days. Uh, send them to our site. Uh, we even have a service people can, can actually book a call where they, uh, they can just call in and talk to somebody like me. We talk to couples all the time, and we encourage people to do that. And a lot of times folks call us before they actually talk to their partner and say, okay, how do I even start this conversation? We go through everything you and I have been talking about, and then I'll tell them, I say, look, when you talk to your partner, if you think it's helpful, tell them they can call us either by themselves or you two can call together. I, I, think, I think having a backup plan, it's not just you talking about it, it's like, Here's some information that I've got from these reputable sources. Here's some people you can talk to or I can talk to with you, that kind of thing. I don't think it's a bad idea. Okay. All right. And we're going to link to all of these resources in the show notes as well. So the hotline that you can call, the resources on Asha's website that we can find as well, and then the social media links so that you can give them a follow. Now, Fred, is there anything that I haven't covered that maybe you want to drop here or if there's anything that you want to make sure the world knows about Asha? I think you've been really thorough and I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Courtney, a lot of the stigma with herpes goes back to either the late 70s or the very early 80s when there was a magazine cover that said herpes, the new scarlet letter. They had a big red H on the cover of the magazine, the national magazine. And I think that's part of the reason why um, why herpes is it, it, People treat the way they do it. Think about it. You could go on late night TV and you could make a herpes joke and people will laugh. If you went on late night TV and joked about HIV or cancer or something like that, you would be fired from your job. But with herpes, yeah, you can do it and everybody laughs. And I think it's just important that we recognize the stigma piece is so important with herpes, but it's because we make it that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That's not a rational reaction. It's not a fair reaction. I mean, you know, people got enough to deal with, and when they're dealing with something like herpes, it's it's really, at its core, it's a simple skin infection. It, recurrent skin virus is exactly what it is, and to just make, just to give people all this emotional turmoil around it, it's just tragic and unfair, and it's just not right. It's just not right, so thank you for doing what you can to help people get through that. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you, man. I really do. You're, you're, you're doing good work, and, and I appreciate you giving us a chance to really put a spotlight on some of the things we're doing. Thank you. Yeah, so we're going to blame media for the stigma. It's all their fault, starting with that 
newspaper article with the scarlet H on it. So big takeaway here is that we really want to try and prep providers because this is the first point of contact where people are receiving their diagnosis, they're getting their information, they're they're confronted with the stigma immediately whenever any provider is delivering a diagnosis or answering any questions. So it's important that the providers are as prepped as they can be. So we'll be sure if you're a provider, we'll link to Asha's resources as well so that we can get that toolkit available to them. Thank you so much for your time, Fred, and um, I'm going to let you go on and get out of here. All right. Thank you so much, Courtney. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And we'll be in touch um, about the next steps and editing and all that stuff, linking the resources too. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Have a good weekend. You as well. Take care. Uh, Not that much is going on this weekend. Thanks, COVID-19. So this concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. If you feel called to leave a donation, um, if you're someone who is capable of doing so, this really helps a lot. You can visit spfpp.org on the homepage. If you scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a few different options for making a donation. You can use Venmo. You can use PayPal. You can become a Patreon subscriber as well. If you feel compelled to, there's no pressure. This resource is going to continue to be free for as long as I can provide it for free. I just ask that we promote the resource and do whatever we can to contribute to the cause. My goal isn't to end stigma. It's to give people the resources that they need in order to navigate it. As we talked about earlier, this is a suicide prevention resource and it's expanding into so much more through other avenues, not just herpes, not just STDs, not just um, sex and sexual health, but just the stigma period, y'all. Till next time, stay sex positive.